What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio. It's me, Dan Evans. I'm joined by the boy, Nathan Cush. By your boy. We we did find out um, early this week <laughs> that Dan did father me. Happy days, man. It was, I mean... When I, I was two. Yeah, I was. I did look up to you as a father figure. Um, Taught me how to ride a bike. How was your, uh, your week? Um, been okay. Uh, rubbing, <laughs> rubbing shoulders. With the great and the good? Uh, yeah. It was just me leaning against the mirror. We got hey, we got um, we we really want to rub everyone's noses in how successful we're becoming. Basically, um, we got we went to the Raymond Williams uh, lecture, and we were invited by Michael Sheen, um, who is our, clearly now our like best friend. Um, we see it that way, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, um, but yeah, we just wanted to let you all know like how good our lives are, um, and you know there was like f- f- although what I would say is that. They had sausages there uh, mm. with horseradish dip. I thought like it was it was, was an just, odd choice, but was it like the kind of I'm sure, like, how how the upper echelons of society? Yeah, so it, I, didn't, I didn't want to. I didn't want to sort of say anything because I thought I'd be uh, sort of thrown out and ridiculed for being a fool for not knowing that. There are also uh, chicken with. satays that have been thrown in the bin. You were devastated. Didn't you? I was because I was like oh, looking around and I was like, if nobody's looking, I might just reach in and give them a go. But it's just all eyes were on me. Like, I have no doubt as well that you would have you would have done it. Oh no, seriously! Like, I think Leanne would like locked eyes me with this stuff in my face. <laughs> Just you about to do it. So yeah, no, but it was a really great lecture. We got a good shout out from uh, Michael Sheen, so we're, we're really grateful for that. Um, but you should really listen to the Raymond Williams uh, lecture because it is doing the rounds on Twitter and Facebook, and I think there's going to be a transcript of it soon as well. Yeah, there's a HD um, video of it on YouTube, which I, I shared from the Facebook account, if anyone wants to spend two hours getting riled up and hearing Michael Sheen take down the First Minister. It's pretty militant. Michael's getting very militant, like um, the Michael Sheen Brigade. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think someone on Twitter said Michael Sheen's going to form a flying column. Yeah, he, um, <laughs> yeah, loads of uh, people that look like, uh, like MAC just on the back, just folding their arms, Came out dressed like, in black. Like. Yeah, they just gave a statement about communique. Yeah. Um, yeah, the sunglasses P- P- on. P. O'Neill. Yeah. <laughs> Reading a statement and um Yeah, and then it finished with a volley of shots. It did, didn't it? Um So the Red House is now out for repairs as the, but as it, the yeah. shards of glass rain down on everyone. One of the things we because um, we've got we've gained some followers since uh, Michael Sheen sort of bumped us, which is awesome. One of the We don't know for how long though. But w- yeah, we anticipate losing those followers really, really quickly. Yeah. Um but within uh, one of the one of the tweets that we've done which is been uh, quite popular this week is re- relates to our Wales this week segment because we always say that when we go over what's happening the Welsh news in the last week or two weeks it's always like incredibly depressing and full of just inexplicable in- inexplicably terrible decisions and made by the Welsh government and just incompetence and like horrible corruption like right the way through and on so, every level as and well. so I guess the main stories this week have been um, the new water bill. And water obviously plays a, a pretty symbolic role within sort of the Welsh national imaginary because of, well, it's our main natural resource. It's our main natural, not sound Mode point. of bathing. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's one of the few, you know, Scotland has oil and everyone always said, oh, Wales has water. But Yeah, um, so it's an export, isn't it? Really? Yeah, but it was given, it's been given this symbolic value by... Um, because of what happened in the 60s with the drowning of the village of Capel, uh, Welsh-speaking village of Capel Kellyn uh, in North Wales to uh, provide the city of Liverpool with cheap water. Um, and because of that, I guess water 
is indelibly stamped on the Welsh consciousness, even if most people in a lot of people in the world wouldn't have a clue about Tro Aaron because it's not taught in schools. Um, because you know ownership of your own natural resources is bound up with it, it's a clo- it, you know it's whether it's a colonial relationship or whether it's a relationship of equals. If another country could just take your water, I mean, at the time every Welsh MP voted against the decision to drown Capel Kellen, but it was sort of vetoed by the numeric majority enjoyed by you know English MPs basically. Didn't wash with the big boys. Um, so what's happened now is that like what they they in the um under the existing act and, and set of powers which have been replaced the environment secretary like as in the english environment secretary could actually repeal assembly legislation and make other interventions if they believe water supply or quality in england is under threat um but there are no reciprocal powers for welsh government ministers so basically that if wales wanted to do something with its natural resources with water that might even negatively impact on prices in england because everything's about consumption and you know, water's treated as a private business rather than like a, a natural, an actual right. Do not, my friends, become addicted to water. It will take hold of you, and you will resent its absence. But that, so that veto basically is being replaced. So it's going to be replaced, and there's going to be a new. Uh, there's a new agreement, uh, which basic, uh, which. Oh God, this language, which means water consumers on both sides of the border are safeguarded, um, as if water consumption is like a luxury, like a luxury um, product. Um, okay, so it's so basically, the protocol means that the Secretary of State's powers of intervention in relation to water are going to be repealed. What's crazy, though, I mean, like to think about it, that those powers were put in place in the Government of Wales Act two thousand six. So why, which was at the time probably billed as really progressive, even though it had, oh, there's a caveat, by the way, we can take it all the water if you, if you want. Um, <laughs> Sounds like such a diabolical scheme, doesn't so it? So that protocol uh, is replaced with a reciprocal agreement, which has basically been called, um, it's just, it's shared control over Welsh water. Um, and then Plaid have said, this does, doesn't go far enough. So John Edwards has said, Wales's water resources belong to the people of Wales, and we should not accept anything less than that. It's astonishing that our own Welsh government, under the control of the Labour Party, is willing to accept shared ownership over our resources when Westminster has no such control over Scottish water. And that, I mean, I just think I'm not, you know, I'm not a nationalist, but that just seems completely common, like common sense. What, how it? It's interesting to see how this has been reported because I think it's been spun as if this has been sort of like a very revolutionary thing it's that, like a positive thing especially in the wales align article which kind of threw me off yeah because it, it makes out that this is a huge deal that like something like Tawaran will never happen but as jonathan edwards pointed out scotland you know the, the, the westminster can't has no say over scottish natural resources or scottish water but now under the shared agreement there's just shared agreement of welsh water so whatever happens that is giving away sovereignty isn't it mm. essentially but the, like for example the bbc article says um, water power agreement signed by Welsh and UK governments. So there's basically that. You know, so the authority to make decisions will be shared by the two governments. But who's more powerful, the Welsh government or the English government? Like, why? Why wouldn't the Welsh gov- government push for sole ownership and sovereignty of water? It's just, I just find it inexplicable, mind blowing. Like, I just, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I just don't understand why. How is how is that? How is sharing ownership of 
evade responsibility then, don't you? I mean, it's, yeah. it's another th- it's another thing that you can like uh, Welsh Labour or the Welsh government can position themselves on if any criticism of it comes their way they can deflect yeah but at the same time kind of be you know they could say like oh we want to push for full devolution of uh you know looking after our water supplies it's just it's just one of those things that i just there has to be a deep i mean at the heart of the welsh government there has to be a deep rooted hostility to the idea of um either responsibility or maybe sovereignty um, even if, like, you know, as I said, I, I don't think it's a nationalistic sentiment to think that given what's happened in the past and how symbolic water is, that the logical thing to have done would have been to push for sole, you know, sole ownership and veto of, you know, Welsh water. Does the Welsh government have, interesting, does the Welsh government have equal say over water in the Peak District, I wonder? Yeah, that's true, yeah. I mean, I, mean I, 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 just, I just find it pretty bizarre. So that's the, that's the one thing. The other thing... Um, I just put me in a bad mood already. Was so we're gonna move on to the the biggest story I feel that Wales has experienced this this year, which is so um, <clears throat> a few weeks back, funny story appeared. Uh, oh, the escape links. Yeah, escape a links escape from everyone loves links. Is they're yeah. beautiful, beautiful in danger. It's like oh, is this, is this like a metaphor for what we can be? Yeah, breaking and- away from our shackles to run wild mm. and eat sheep. Yeah, basically evade police capture. You know, all the traps to get put down, just, you know, keep escaping them. And yeah, and she was like trolling everywhere and she was like, there's a, uh, the camera captured her just like standing by the trap, like just staring at the camera. Mm. And then she just did, legged it. But, um. The John Rambo of Lynxes. But, you know, so everyone loved Lilith, the yeah. both Lynx. I mean, she was a good news story, an exciting sort of, you know, it was. Like every it was, few days you get an update yeah, where, you know, she, it was fun she'd and, taken out an armed squadron. Fun and whimsical sort of news. And so what, you know, Given that that's the, uh, you know, what was the obvious solution then? Um, what happened to her, Nathan? I've missed the news this week. Um, well, I'm, assu- happened- I'm assuming they, ca- you know, they captured her alive. And, the, you know, no, it's fine. They turned her, her and then, like, you know, everyone learned uh, from, from the mistakes and learned a bit about themselves as well. And we as a nation were greater people because of it. Now, what actually happened was um, Keradigian Council would keep pushing in to kind of exterminate it. So um, as, as the Lynx was, uh, like... Attacking livestock as they do, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. I mean, but I mean, like, I'm using it as cover. But, but, but like, me. but like George Mom, yeah, someone, someone, some animal has ripped out the throat of these yeah. goats and, and had sex with them. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but like, you know, George Monbiot said, like, it's, you know, it's important. Like, lynx wouldn't kill sheep. Um, no, I mean, the, and these, lynx these, is like the size of a, a la- smaller than like a Labrador. It, it is, it is important to point out as well that lynxes were once indigenous to the British Isles, and there are trusts. Um, like they're trying to reintroduce beavers are trying to reintroduce lynxes in the wild. So, you know, historically probably never killed someone. I, I can't see through the entire entirety of history, but I mean, they're not reported. There enough. has never been a recorded incident of a lynx attacking a person. Anyway, lynx is about the, the, like, say the twice the size of a household cat as well. Or, or like maybe the same uh, size as like a Maine Coon cat, which are, you know, quite predatory. Anyway, they, they shot the lynx. So yeah, they shot the lynx, but this was after, um, so it made its way eventually into an abandoned caravan park as if like the final stand down. It was found asleep under one of the caravans and then some kind of like carry on mo- moment. One of the, um, oh, well, counts, they, yeah. Yeah. They, so they the basically, council. they're ready to trap it. And one of the council people said, basically, no, We've got to wait until we can verify that it is actually. Oh, well, I want to have a closer look. He fell uh, up a hill, and, and then it, scared it, and, and it ran away. Um, 
but you know, I know we were joking about this, but this is it. It's wound me up so much because it's firstly like you know, there's the obvious horrific sort of you, know, you you killed an endangered beautiful animal for absolutely no reason. Um, like it, it, the sort of the bar the barbarism in that, and but I just think. It's something that could only happen in Wales. I honestly think that that level of incompetence... Not only happened once, but a few days later, uh, while trying to move um, another lynx in the same zoo, they put a dog muzzle on it and accidentally killed that as well. It's insane. Like so, that. I mean, originally, I think a lot of people did have sympathy for the... Who were, like, new owners of this um, this little zoo in, in Borth, wasn't it? And then in, and now it's kind of changed a bit now. Man, that work experience, they, kid, an absolute nightmare. I mean, imagine that like, comes know. back in, oh, you'll... How's the link? How's the other? How's our surviving links? Yeah, oh, at well, least you've got that link yeah. that's definitely alive. You'll never, you'll never guess what. Uh, <laughs> Funny story. Yeah, um, yeah, but I mean, like, so the the everything about it is like so banal and so banally brutal. The fact that they had people apparently on scene with tranquilizer darts, and oh no, well, instead well, of they're tra- on tranquilizers. But, no, but, but I mean, like, so there was literally the option of, of tranquilizing the links, but they just decided, no, we're just going to shoot it. Like, I, for, genuinely for no reason. I mean, oh, I this, just, this person as well is like, yeah, oh, we've got, you know, he's got high-tech equipment, he's got infrared. Yeah, and... But, but, we've, like, got the, we've got the um, the dude from Jaws. You all know me. Know how I earn a living. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't going to be easy. It's bad fish. Not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cats. This shark swallow you whole. Shaking, tenderizing, down you go. And we gotta do it quick. That'll bring back the tourists. That'll put all your businesses on a paying basis. For you know, for reference, a lynx escaped in Devon from a similar zoo in 2016, and after a couple of weeks, the lynx was. Crown but, but the lynx was captured um, with absolutely no problem. And so... Now a local celebrity. And it happens yeah. in Wales. Firstly, they can't catch it. Like, they can't like they can't catch it like because they're, they're, we're a bunch of morons. Um, and then they just killed it, like, it, you know, in, in cold blood, despite it posing absolutely no threat to anyone. Like, I mean, there's been... But what's clearly happened is that in Caradigan, there's obviously some local farmer or oh, something he's like losing that. livestock. Um, yeah, yeah. And then they've got, you know, a direct line to the council. Oh, kill it, kill it. Um, but I just don't think, how can you not see it being a, a PR disaster? Like, I mean, aside from the, you know, how barbaric it was to kill it. I mean, how can you not think, well, hey, maybe we should just try to tranquilize this thing rather than kill it? Um, Do you know why? I, I'll tell you why that they didn't think of it as being a PR disaster. is because there'd be little to no... Uh, come up and throw me. And so we're going to make some stickers and we're going to send them out, send them out and we want people to plaster them all over um, basically everywhere. Uh, yeah, to, if, if... As a fit and tribute to Lilith. If you want some stickers, we're trying to get a sticker pack together. So if you could send us your name and address and to desolationwales at gmail.com. Yeah, also, basically, if you've got any questions or issues or um, that you'd like us to talk about, um, any, you know, questions... Like advice, if you want life advice, yeah, if uh, we'll give you some really bad life advice, I guess. But you get to hear your personal problems right out on the pod, which yeah. is entertaining for all of us. Anonymously, of course. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's Wales this week. Thank you for listening. And we're now going to be joined by our very good friend, Barnaby Phillips, from the Revolutionary Communist Group. Yeah, this is our first 
uh, interview using Skype, so you will notice that the sound quality will differ slightly, but it's all part of the, like, you know... Authentic experience. Yeah, the authentic experience of listening to this podcast. Okay, hope you enjoy. The Revolutionary Communist Group was founded in the early 1970s after splitting from the Socialist Workers' Party. Over the next decade, it produced a series of theoretical journals which developed the group's politics in the direction of Marxism and Leninism. In 1979, it launched the newspaper Fight Racism, Fight Imperialism, which has been published at least once every two months ever since, and can be subscribed to on the website revolutionarycommunist.org. The organisation has also produced several important books, including Island, The Key to the British Revolution by David Yaffe, Labour, A Party Fit for Imperialism by Robert Clough, and Che Guevara, The Economics of Revolution by Helen Yaffe. The Revolutionary Communist Group has got branches around England and Scotland, including in London, Nottingham, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle, Glasgow and Edinburgh. It's regularly active in housing and anti-racist campaigns and works to build a fighting independent working class movement in Britain, which puts anti-imperialism at the heart of its politics. Barnaby Phillips is on the editorial board of Fight Racism, Fight, uh, Fight Imperialism, and writes mainly and, ex- well, and extensively and brilliantly, I should say, on climate change and Brexit. And we're delighted to be joined by him today. What's up, Barnaby? Hi, Dan and Nate. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for having me on. No, thanks for, well, thanks for coming on, mate. And, um, you're officially our fir- the first Skype guest on Desolation Radio, so we're, we're really delighted to have you on. Um, and thanks, <laughs> basically, Barnaby is very, a very tolerant, tolerant man already because we, he's just been sort of, we've been chilling while we've been trying to get this right. Um, no, okay, right. so yeah, I'm, doing, so, a, I'm so, doing a cam show as well, so he's been really good. Like, <laughs> I'm well entertained. Yeah, it's uh, pretty distracting. Nate's uh, not wearing any clothes, but um, I just need to get those coins, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, can you do the ding? <laughs> yeah, yeah like ding. time. Yeah, like um, okay. Um, not that our any of our listeners will understand that reference at no, all, but I um, barely got it myself. Okay, right. So, Barnaby, it's great to have you on. Um, was that? I get a good overview of the Revolutionary Communist Group and, and what you're involved in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a summary of what the Revolutionary Communist Group is. And, you know, I suppose if I'm going to talk about the Revolutionary Communist Group, I should talk about why I joined, because um, there were obviously a lot of different trends, a lot of different organisations which describe themselves as socialist or communist. There must be at least four organizations in in england and britain that call call themselves communist and they call themselves parties as well um whereas the revolutionary communist group obviously doesn't it's the only organization that doesn't call itself a party so why did i join them when they're maybe the smallest group in britain uh, on the left um i mean basically i moved to south london a couple of couple of years ago and didn't know anyone in London, was living in rented accommodation in a small dingy flat and thought I need to get involved in housing activism. And everything I was sort of getting involved in, the Revolutionary Communist Group was always there, but there weren't any other socialist groups. It was, you know, small, independent, uh, working class groups who were involved in activism um and so i i got got to know these communists through that and um i just thought that they the way that they went about doing politics was impressive um whether it was on a protest or a picket as i say they were always there and they always have a like a sound system uh, with an open microphone that anyone can speak on 
Um, you know, a social democrat can speak on it, an anarchist can speak on it. Um, you know, a, 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 just an independent working class person can speak on it. Open, democratic, non-sectarian. So I, I liked that. Um, that the only group that does that, the, the only group that provides a sort of a people's mic, if you like, giving a voice to, to working class people on the streets. And yeah, so they were there when it was counter housing activism. They were organising around uh, trying to stop deportations, any sort of anti-racist work. They were there. Do, uh, they were organising pickets of uh, Oxford Street in solidarity with Palestine. So, yeah, I, it was obvious to me that this was a serious organisation that was organising politically, doing activism on the streets consistently, uh, doing street stall, even if it's just a street stall at the weekend. They made sure they were there. You know, every branch does it. So I joined quite quickly. Um, you know, they, I don't want to, like... I'm obviously going to sound biased towards the Revolutionary Communist Group, but there wasn't much competition. Um, there were, none of the other socialist groups who, or who call themselves socialists are doing this sort of stuff. So it was, it was a case of if I want to do serious activism, be an anarchist or join the Revolutionary Communist Group. That was, that was the decision. So, and I, I mean, I, at the time, I was quite sympathetic towards anarchism. What made you not join uh, the anarchist group of interest? Well, I, I mean, there's not like you don't really. I'm not sure you join anarchist groups, but um, I was I was involved in activism where anarchists were involved, and like I, I think anarchists are great people, but I prefer this sort of um, disciplined organisation, if you like. <laughs> to, to coin a phrase that the, the RCG was providing, you know they're going to be there every time. And if you want to be a serious activist, that was what appealed to me. And the sort of um, the non-sectarian and democratic nature of the way they do things, I thought was was a breath of fresh air, actually. So it's, that, it's interesting to hear you talk. Um, you know, like. A, the multitude of groups involved in you know housing uh, campaigns and as you said like a variety of street protests and things like that and i i know obviously this i am we you know, are going to bring it back to wales sometimes but what strikes yeah. me already from there is the complete the lack of like for example the non you know not well far left groups for want of a better word in wales i mean i know there is a presence but and this, you know, this is a segue into our next point, I guess, that the, the Labour Party is so powerful in Wales yeah. that you know, they've sort of monopolised politics to, to such a huge extent over the last hundred years. That, I mean, I guess the extra parliamentary left, you know, the, the, well, and all rather the non-Labour left and you know, radical left-wing groups in Wales, I think, you know, seem to be very small. But also, there isn't that culture anymore, I wouldn't say, in Wales of of activism there just isn't because it's mm. it's kind of died to death because it's the culture that has developed is you just vote for your local labor mp yeah. and that is how politics is done it's, it's like you know it's it's pure faith in like this representational democracy and of just you know having a delegate rather than actually doing um doing active doing yeah. activism i guess and i mean like you know if thinking about the most immediate struggle for us you know well nathan and i and 
many of our listeners is is Cardiff and some of the things that the Labour Council have been doing, you know, evicting people through the bed, you know, for being not being able to pay bedroom tax arrears and and things like that. And and what's striking is, I guess, the lack of the lack of activism. I, mean, I know, I mean, I, this isn't to denigrate because I know that there are people who are involved, but in mm-hmm. terms of the the scale of it. I'd say it's notably, noticeably small. So mm-hmm. I guess that brings us on to the first point. I mean, I guess the Revolutionary Communist Group are quite noticeable um, on the left at the moment because, as we sort of we were briefly talking about before we started recording, a lot of the you know far left groupings in the UK, there are a lot of people who have got have thrown themselves behind um, Corbyn and Corbynism. Um, yeah. And rejoin the Labour Party, especially what's London-based independent <laughs> media. <laughs> <laughs> and no, na- no name, no, na- no name, no name is mentioned. No like, um, wouldn't know you mean? Yeah, me <laughs> neither. Um, but that's what's interesting about the Revolutionary Communist Group. I think is that there's been a consistent, you know, honestly, consi- would you say it as anti, an anti-Labour position? I mean, how would you define your position? You know, vis-a-vis the Labour Party and vis-a-vis you know Corbynism at the moment. I mean, the, the, position, the position of the RCG has always been to not vote for Labour, to not endorse a vote for Labour. The slogans over the years has been general election, general fraud, um, or don't vote organise, or don't vote fight for socialism was the last one. Um, but is that just sort of um, flippantly decided? No, you know... It's the it's the the decision of the position is taken very seriously every time. Um, sure. But I mean, it's been a lot easier in the past for that for that position to be justified. This time, obviously, Corbyn Corbyn has sort of unexpectedly become the leader of the Labour Party almost by accident, and that was we had to just we had to decide what our position was and I think a lot of people might have expected us to adopted critical support for him or something like that um so basically we have to sit down and say what should the position and attitude of a socialist organization be towards the Labour Party um you know because obviously communist organizations do sometimes take positions of critical support for tactical reasons but we still think that the Labour Party is a bourgeois liberal party and we don't think that Corbyn's changed that Um, obviously you have this kind of lopsided um, coalition in the Labour Party where the left is now numerically stronger than the right but the right is still that's where the power still lies. Um, you get people, you know, uh, momentum now out campaigning for Blairites. Exactly, you know, and this is very evident with councils in particular. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, we had a campaign in in Lambeth where we had a non-sectarian campaign with involving u- the unions and momentum, um, all of. It was all decided democratically uh, what we were going to do um, at a meeting before, um, and we there was a protest outside the council, and the demand was resist the cuts or resign. 
And this had all been, as I say, agreed to democratically in an in a open meeting beforehand. And on the day, Ed Balls and a few others started tweeting, you know, they started tweeting, what the hell are Momentum doing campaigning against Labour councillors? And Momentum absolutely bottled it. Really? <laughs> yeah, they absolutely bottled it. Um, Unite as well. Um, I can't remember exactly what happened. It's all documented online. Yeah. Um, but they threw everyone else under the bus and um, and pulled out of the campaign. Um, I think I won't well, I won't go into that actually. But um, so that's what that's what. Yeah. Like you say, they end up campaigning for Blairites and people they don't actually like, because at the end of the day, they've got to they've got to get elected. That's the whole point. Um, and. You know, we've seen Corbyn make a series of capitulations um, to the right. Um, and we have to take that under serious consideration when we when we have a position on the Labour Party. But it's not just a, some sort of moral um, position. Um, and, you know, uh, we just want to look like we're right. It's yeah, there's a there's a analytical basis to our position which is that because well to maintain the electability of the Labour Party he has had to prioritise the unity of the party and that means you know um, compromising with the right wing of the party sure. um, so you know Corbyn's not the worst man in the world by any stretch of imagination he's obviously one of the more left wing members of the Labour aristocracy. He's obviously a much pre preferable person to a Tony Blair. Yeah. He obviously is, you know, has very uh, socially progressive um, views. Um, but can we say that a socialist organisation should be offering critical support? No, because the Labour Party, as I say, is still a bourgeois liberal party. It's still an imperialist party. Um, the councils across the country are implementing cuts on the on the ground on behalf of the Tories. Um, his manifesto, as radical as it sounded relatively compared to what we're yeah, using, yeah, yeah, exactly, um, well, still we, only promised to reverse one fifth of the benefit cuts. Well, yeah, I mean that's what we pointed out on um, an earlier show was that of all this you know oh you can say like we're going to send everyone to uni for free but it's the, still at the back of a huge amount of cuts that the you know i guess what a better term well yeah working class or people who are outside society have to bear the brunt of yeah and now we i mean his his call for a for a pause and a rethink of universal credit is totally inadequate because this is a really significant and barbaric attack on the poorest sections of the working class we want to see it scrapped we want to see people fighting to get it scrapped because people are being turfed out onto the streets and then you know there there is real deprivation like very very quickly yeah um involved with this because obviously people are being denied any money at all well it's six weeks without any money isn't it universal credit essentially um yeah um but that's i mean that's really encouraging, I guess, and really heartening that, as you said, it's not like a knee-jerk, almost like, um, oh, we won't, we'll never sort of vote Labour, as you said, you're looking at the material conditions in, in each sort of candidate as it comes, and, and it's not, you know, each candidate almost is as bad as another, because 
as you said, there's a different, a clear qualitative difference between Corbyn and, and Blair, for example. Yeah. But but what strikes me about the whole, you know, what's happened recently and and the way that Labour, you know, under Corbyn has sort of subsumed people who previously claimed to be, you know, communists or even anarchists, mm. um, things like that, is as you said, this lack of just I mean, the fact that naming no one. No, but, but, but back in you know back in the sixties, you know Ralph Miliband was writing on you know and and John Savile and things were writing on um, the nature of the Labour Party. People have been writing you know people have been writing you know Lenin and Engels and Marx were writing on the nature of the Labour Party yeah. for um, you know how it is an imperial imperialist and sort of as you said a bourgeois liberal party. But that sort of has just fallen by the wayside, hasn't it? It's like it's, it's almost like a huge debate on the left. Um, but about what, what, what that brings me on to, you said earlier that you know the Revolution Communist Group is a group; it's not a party. So, is it? Is it have you have you got? Is it like abstentionism? Like you know, never elect, ne- never contest councils, it or council we, elections, or yeah, we don't get involved in that. We, I mean, we're t- we're too small; we don't have the resources anyway. Um, I don't know what we would do exactly if we did. Um, you know, I think communists use elections tactically. Um, yeah to amplify their message um but yeah so you're not going to be uh sticking on a suit and uh, running for election anytime soon under the no. banner of the rc uh, a, slick, a slick tv advert uh no, an I mean, like, message the, brought to you by the rcg no i mean we've got our our slick videos <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well, like well, short, short little educationals on the crisis of capitalism and the crisis of the environment i mean yeah we're a, we're a group um you know, we don't consider ourselves the vanguard. Um, we're not a party. Be, you know, it'd be silly to suggest that we are. Um, but that's obviously what we want to rebuild. We want to help re- rebuild the socialist movement in this country and internationally. Um, and that involves, you know, obviously you might think, well, they're just activists. They're not actually revolutionary communists. But you know, theory without practice is meaningless. So doing the activism is really important. And actually that's where members learn the most important lessons and, and the quickest as well is, you know, being on the streets, talking to people, being involved in, um, being involved in campaigns, which is especially where you learn about the role of the labor aristocracy and how stifling it is. Um, you know, we're, we're non-sectarian, so we work with any organisation in a campaign, but um, we consistently come up against organisations like the Socialist Workers' Party, who are basically, no comment, but are basically their role is to channel everything into the Labour Party. Yeah, essentially. So, you know, I, I, Co-op I, protests and everything, don't they? Yeah, so they're... They're, they've become. They're, I mean, they they say they're Leninists, but they they've they are totally embedded in the trade union. So they don't go beyond. They don't really go outside the trade unions that much. Um, and they yeah they organise rallies and uh, marches, but that's it. Where are the pickets? Where are the occupations? They, they just don't do that, and they won't. They will actively demobilise actually, um, because they make everything so boring. Um, you know, you go on these marches. You, you, you know, you're a young politically active person. Well, you've just become politicised, and you're, you're yeah, getting, yeah. 
perspective and you go on these marches and you must think, to be honest, you must think, is this it? Is this what it's all about? And that, and I think that's partly why the movement is so dead. Um, you know, there isn't a movement. Um, but you can't call it like a, a movement because it's just, it's just campaigning for his, for his election. That's not a movement. A movement has to be out on the streets, supporting working class people consistently, um, relating to their struggles, supporting their struggles, um, doing real activism to defend working class interests. And that's, that doesn't exist at the moment. Okay. We tend to be absolutely like their members tend to be completely unbearable as well, don't they? <laughs> we we get nasty comments and sectarian comments, and you know we we get censored and we get no platformed, and that's unacceptable. Um, but we we always fight to to have our voice heard. We, you know they don't want us to speak because they don't want the Labour Party to be criticised. Um, but we'll we'll fight our corner. We'll we'll fight to speak on these platforms, and we always offer them our microphone. You know, we yeah, have. Didn't Cliff the... though? He wrote uh, a big book critical of the Labour Party. Probably did, um, but that didn't stop the SWP from always campaigning to vote for them. Like even yeah. when, even when it was Blair and Brown, um, they always said, uh, you know, come election time, they always said vote Labour. I guess it's uh, right when retroactively as yeah. well as the events have happened. Yeah, and that's but, and that's not how you raise consciousness among the working class. And you know, you keep telling the working class to vote Labour, and then their conditions only get worse. I mean, no wonder they're turned off left wing politics, and no wonder we have such widespread apathy in this country. I mean, even the Communist Party um, have been have taken like I'd say. You know, normally they're a critical friend of the Labour Party, but like mm. the friend, it's been very friendly. I would say, like if you look at some of the releases, the Communist Party of Britain, it's been, you know, fully behind Corbyn and Corbynism. Um, but this brings bring us on to our next point I want to discuss, Barnaby, because you've, I mean, as you, you just alluded to some of the videos, you know, that the RCG makes, and um, and that was, I guess, what first caught my eye on social media looking at the RCG because looking at the RCG's analysis of what we are facing as a society, sort of environmental crisis, political crisis. You know, I was watching it, I was like, bloody hell, this is bang on the money, but it's also like, it's quite close to the bone how, I guess, well, I can't, we can't, we can't say the F word or the C word on this podcast, but we're, but, you know, we're in a lot of shit, aren't we, as a society? And um, if you just, why don't you just explain to us, I guess, the message that, you, you know, the RCG's take on where society is, you know, in terms of the yeah. environmental crisis we're facing, in terms of the political crisis, and like, what what is potentially on the horizon? What's the dystopian well, possibility? We can't. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't speculate too much about what's coming. We we have to um, analyse things in the here and now on, sure. on a material basis. But obviously, we can a- anticipate that there, a massive massive crisis of the capitalist system is on the horizon. Um, you know, as bad as things are now, it, it really has not got going yet um the conditions are very similar to 1910 if you look at the economic conditions the the imperialist powers and the fdi stock as a share and that sort of thing is very similar now to to what it was then i mean yeah we we think this is the biggest crisis that the capitalist system has ever faced there's four reasons for that um mainly it's because 
capitalism is global now. Um, it, it's everywhere, you know, and capitalism has to keep expanding. It, it, it depends on, on constant expansion and it's sort of not got anywhere left to go in, in that sense. Um, and then you've got... Do you mean in a term uh, left to go in terms of markets or do we mean like, you know, where it can um, get resources? I mean, yeah, markets. I mean, the, mar- the, the, the free market is everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's also that, you know, in terms of there's always new places to find cheap labour. Um, but I mean, I mean, maybe the, the, the big thing now on the horizon um, is automation, isn't it? And like uh, the whole like test, yeah. new Tesla capitalism of. Yeah, I, I was gonna say. I mean, yeah. So we've got we've got global capitalism. So they're running out of earth. <laughs> basically, <laughs> capitalism, yeah. basically, you've got unprecedented levels of debt, um, private and public. Sure. You've got um, the fact that the dollar is no longer the sort of anchor for global currencies and there's nothing to replace it. Um, yeah. The EU, the euro and, and uh, the Chinese yen are not in a strong enough position. Whether they will be later on remains to be seen, but it doesn't look likely. And then, yeah, automation, which is, you know, throws up this absolutely massive contradiction in that not only will it obviously make tons more people unemployed, um, increase poverty, increase inequality and precarity and all that stuff, but it it also will undermine the capitalist system because surplus value, which comes from human labour power, which is the ability to labour, is the sole source of uh, profit. And so, you know... The logical conclusion of this, the singular that people talk about when the only production is robot, yeah, the singularity, yeah. sorry, when uh, you get when, to the um, robots, robots making robots. Conscious, yeah. Sorry? Conscious and self-aware. Yeah. I think that's the uh, Well, I, I don't know about that, but it's just the fact that if you, like, just take it to the logical extreme, which will, will never happen, we'll never get to that point, but they would... The logical extreme is that it would abolish the source of of profit, <laughs> which, um, as I say, we'll never get to that point because the social upheavals on, along the way are going to be huge, um, and it would take a very long time anyway. I mean, there are things undermining automation, like um, the fact that it's not necessarily profitable to invest in. Um, the, the pace of innovation isn't isn't you know it's not at light speed. But it's happening. But but the fundamental thing really is that, you know, um, capitalism always needs to raise productivity, um, mainly because of competition. Like the first person, the first company um, to innovate in a certain way will have a competitive edge over the rest of their market and they'll be able to provide their products cheaper as as a result. But then once their competitors catch up, they then need to innovate again, and so on and so forth. And we're at a stage, really, where technology is so advanced that the only sort of way that they can raise productivity is through greater means of automation. So this is going to cause, I mean, yeah, like I say, it's going to take a long time, but there are predictions that, for instance, in Britain, 15 million jobs will go by 2030, which isn't that far away. 
No, um, it's, it's worth so, pointing out as well. They don't necessarily mean, say, warehouse jobs or factory jobs. You know, we're talking about middle class jobs as well, aren't we? Such as yeah, lawyers, as, you as know. well. Yeah, definitely. Like what is law? Uh, accounting and yeah, I mean all sorts of things. Lifeguards. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's better um, to figure out a way for the robots to electrocute everyone else in the water. <laughs> And one of the interesting things you also pointed out was almost like the rise, you know, this being accompanied by a rise of protectionism and a rise in save real, really scary saber rattling, really on it um, between the main, between the main players, between you know the USA and you know the USA threatening North Korea, yeah. um, which is an ally of China. You know, you've got Iran and Saudi Arabia have, it, engaged in a full, a full-blown proxy war yeah. in the Middle East and. You know, with, with, you know, obviously with the U.S. and Russia involved as well. Um, so it's it's a tinderbox, and in, I mean, I was wondering what the RCG the RCG's take is on you know, I guess the the, the tensions at the moment within the international state yeah. system. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, look, the, the 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 crisis is is rooted in the process of capital accumulation uh, and a sort of overproduction of capital, which means that capital cannot be reinvested profitably. Why would, if you're a capitalist, why would you reinvest it um, if it's not profitable? And this is happening in all of these countries, um, especially the US. And yeah, it's, it's the biggest imperial, imperialist power we've ever seen. And it is, has been in steady decline and it doesn't like that it is being challenged by, you know, these developing nations, if you like. Um, but at the same time, the, the RCG has always maintained that the EU is actually the biggest threat to, to the US. Um, you know, the, the EU in its own right is an imperialist bloc, really. We've we've consistently reported on the, the steps that uh, Germany and France especially have taken to sort of consolidate um, a European imperialist bloc. I always thought that the EU uh, existed so middle-class liberals could have nice holidays abroad. With <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's part of the package, certainly. Uh, talk about the EU. I mean, as you said, I mean the, the misconceptions and, and the way that the EU has been sort of the debate about the EU has, be, has been sort of warped into you know the EU, the EU, on, you know there's the evil Tories on the one hand, and then there's the benevolent progressive EU on the other. As you, and as you said, it's people are forgetting about the you know the, the mi- dead migrants yeah. um, mm. in the Medi- you know in the Mediterranean. Um, well, the, 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 as well as. Sorry. I was going to say that. No, but as well as the EU's, uh, EU's sort of imperialist role around the around the world in terms of global fishing fisheries and things like that. Okay, so yeah, I mean that's interesting. You talk about the you know, the EU as and you said it is an imperial bloc. What's the RCG's take on on Brexit and and where does that fit in? I guess with your overall analysis of the, the sort of the, the the crisis that's on the horizon and what does it mean? What would you say it would mean in particular for the for the UK? Um, well, I don't think it's going to be good <laughs> for, for Britain at all. Um, but, I mean, we took a position of principled boycott because we saw it as basically a dispute within the ruling class. Um, in the paper, um, we've written since something like 2006 that 
the British ruling class was going to be forced into a decision it didn't want to make regarding Europe, which was, and, and this was driven by the fact that Britain could no longer sustain itself as an independent imperialist power. So it was going to have to take a side with US imperialism or European imperialism. Um, and yeah, it didn't want to, it didn't want to make this decision. So it had to put it to a referendum essentially. Um, and the ruling class is very, very divided on this subject. Um, yeah. You've got, you've obviously got the people who want to remain because they can see that leaving the EU would be pretty disastrous. Um, and then you've got the Brexiteers, the so-called Brexiteers, who have links to US hedge funds. I mean, they come up with all sorts of nonsense about restoring British sovereignty and recapturing our borders. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's really motivated by their links to US hedge funds, I think. Um, but the reality is actually that Britain's role, the city of London's role as a financial centre for for European capital, even world capital, was going to be undermined either way. I mean, the city of London is extremely parasitic. Um, you know, all it does is is ex, you know suck in all this capital from um, the oppressed nations um, and recirculates it. Um, so. Yeah, but it was going to, it's, the City of London's independent role, if you like, was going to be undermined either way, because this was an opportunity for US to, you know, take, you know, some of these banks are going to go to New York, and some of them are going to go to Calais, uh, to um, France and Germany. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, this is just another symptom really uh, of the crisis an expression of the crisis of capitalism and yeah brexit is i think um a protectionist um development but we saw before brexit and before donald trump um became president and even before he started running we started to see record numbers of um sort of trade restrictions being implemented, you know, so it's almost happening independent of, of anyone's will. Um, and yeah, Marx wrote about protectionism sort of being an inevitable development as, uh, you know, during capitals, capitalism's decay. And yeah, the, the crisis is rooted in capitalism's decaying nature, you know, so you're going to see, you're going to see these sort of protectionists rising to the to the top of of you know of of the political parties, and, and they're going to they're going to come into power because you know the liberals were in power. What we've got to ask the question: Why are they no? Why can they no, no longer stay in power? It's because they cannot sustain their base, their electoral base. They can't sustain them economically. They can't can't sustain their privileges. Failure so, democracy, isn't it? Well, liberal democracy, social democracy. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what social democracy is anymore. It's social democracy used to mean something a bit more left wing than it is now. I mean, Venezuela's a social democracy, but it's far more radical than than the social democracy we have here. Um, for obvious reasons, they need to struggle that much harder in a in a non-imperialist country for their for their privileges. Um, you, so you yeah, a, I thought, sorry to interject there. Um, 
you said there, Barnaby, there's two things I want to sort of pick up on, maybe have you elaborate on if that's okay. Um, firstly, well, stay, staying on Brexit, um, some people have sort of interpreted, you know, the vote for Brexit, you know, the, by the people, you know, almost as um, as well as people sort of tearing their hair out and saying this is terrible, you know, everyone's racist, things like that. Other people have, I guess, have interpreted it as, you know, just like a, a cry for help or, you know, a, a, yeah. um, do you see, does the RCG or do you see any sort of like revolutionary potential? Is, you know, is, is that, as it's been interpreted, just a sign of people's disaffection with yeah, the political it's definitely system? An, it's definitely an, uh, an expression of popular anger. Um, you know, it's not it's not completely analogous to, to what happened with Trump, but there are there are obviously um, some consistencies. I mean, yeah, I mean, our position on on immigration is that um, controls on immigration in an imperialist country are necessarily racist. I mean, they're necessarily sure. discriminatory. Um, unfortunately, that's not a position that's shared beyond the RCG. I don't think um, so. We will never say that immigration controls aren't racist, but I don't think we think that everyone who voted for Brexit was racist um, by any means. I, and actually, you know, who were the main backers of Brexit? It was the sort of the, the little Englanders in the Tory party. Um, did some working class people vote for Brexit because? They think that immigration is um, putting a strain on um, services, public public services. Yes, um, probably. Um, but does that mean that they hate immigrants? I don't think so. I mean, there are all sorts of weird trends within the working class. I mean, you know, the SWP and some of the other socialist organisations went for Alexit, which I don't, I don't know what that... I mean, they, they have this sort of um, fantasy of a Keynesian EU, uh, and it was sort of... Um, they sort of were putting it in those terms. Um, and then... Pe and So we can't... I mean, it was just a bit of a fantasy, really. And then there are people in the working class who are maybe quite poor and think that immigration is a problem for them. Um, because they can't get a job, which, you know, when you look at the, on the surface of things, um, probably looks, that's probably what it looks like. But yeah. So it's our job to speak to those people and say, no, you're being lied to, um, and this is what's actually happening, and actually your, your position will be strengthened um, if you unite with migrants. And, you know, that's what we have to do. And we have to make these arguments um, because otherwise these divisions in the working class will persist and we'll, we won't get anywhere as a class. Um, you said just then about, you know, that's a really important point, that the fact that you know, people talk about like Brexiters as if they're sort of some homogenous group, whereas, uh, and in, partic in particular, really, that's mainly used as a something to beat over the head of, is to demonise working class people as you know racist or thick or whatever. But as you said, the biggest you know Brexiteers are the, the sort of petty bourgeois, um, you know the the basically yeah. these middle, middle class people. So 
and obviously you know the, the petty bourgeois and the middle class have obviously his, you know, within Marxism been seen as I guess the the class which is going to be that the most um, amenable to sort of fa- you know fascist tendencies. Do you see any evidence of you know for, you know fascism gets thrown around a lot mm. you know in this sort of era? Do you see any signs of actual sort of classic fascism either in the UK or or in the US? Um. Well, I, I spoke to someone from Workers' World Party recently, and they do think that there is a, um, a large base for fascism in um, America, in the US. I mean, you're talking about an imperialist power um, that's the richest imperialist power ever. So the majority of that country, including a large section of the working class, has enjoyed very high standard of living for a long time. And that's being taken away. Um, so it's, it makes it that much harder to convert them to socialist politics because they're, you know, just because you lose privilege doesn't magically give you proletarian consciousness. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it makes it that much harder. But, you know, um, comrades in, in the US are going to have to they're going to have to try and win not, you know, not Trump supporters really, but some of the people who just voted for him because they thought, why not? Um, some, for some, I mean, you look, I've been watching documentaries on the BBC and, and, that, and these really old mining towns, um, where, yeah, they've sort of been completely run down. Um, and they have been proletarianized and they, they're very resentful about a lot of things. Um, you've got to try and talk to them and and explain to them. I've, I mean, I think that if you can make if you can get the decaying nature of capitalism into uh, as a concept into people's heads, as, into popular consciousness, then then other things will follow from there. You know, yeah. they'll start to realise who their friends are and who their enemies are. And you've got to try. If people are not, if people don't want to hear it um then you forget about them and you 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 say that unfortunately that person's a racist and we're not gonna we're not gonna turn them um you know it's so within 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 this epoch then i mean how does i mean i I know the rcg i guess it comes back to the labor party and things like that but how does fascism start to thrive during situations like this and you know um because I mean, we, as you said, it, we've got to get this right, haven't we? So yeah. I mean, we've really got to get it right. Um, but so I, th- I mean, I guess that well, we know. I think or pe- a lot of people on the left know what to do. But I think there's a lot of people within social democratic parties or liberal parties that just don't get it. Do you think it's their stra- their tactics that will that will help fascism, or is it the fact they don't understand the nature of the present crisis, or, or is it just a bit of both? Yeah, I mean, it probably is a bit of both. Um, you know, we've got to build a communist party in this country um, that's influential because communist parties have a habit of, of um, dragging other organisations to the left, if you like. Um, yeah, we've got to encourage people to to form independent working class organisations because until we do that, we're going to just be hand-wringing about the liberal 
parties forever. Um, and, and they're going to do what they're going to do, aren't they? They're just going to yeah, they're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to act in their class interests, and and fascists will cash in on that. They'll cash in on the resentment it's caused. If if socialists don't organise, if we don't build a party, um, then then there is this vacuum, you know, and um, it will not be filled by the type of social democracy we have at the moment uh, or liberal democracy. Um, so we've got to get active. We've got to get out on the streets. We've got to talk to people. We've got to support them in their struggles, you know, because they're being abandoned by the rest of the left at the moment, I'm afraid. And, um, you know, look at, look at some of the campaigns going on, like the bin workers strike in Birmingham. Yeah. Been completely sold out by the Labour Party there. Um, Labour, Unite, Labour Council, isn't it? Yep, Labour Council. Unite is is kind of undermining the struggle as well. There's the um, Durham, uh, Durham Teachers' Assistance as, yep, as well. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a Labour Council as well, I believe, isn't yep. it? Was it? Um, oh, in both cases, in both cases as well, Unite have been the Unite Union have basically told us, you know, the strikers to start off because they want they didn't want to hurt the Labour Party. Um, yeah, exactly, and this is always the contradiction that they're confronted with. So you basically, I mean, basically, as long as the left are abandoned, you know, as you said, not sticking up for these people, there's always going to be a fighting chance of fascism to fill that void, isn't it? Yeah, um, and the, the advantage fascists have is they have more money than communists usually, because um, they're too busy sharing it. They come, <laughs> they come from a petty bourgeois background. Uh, you know, they're usually. You know, small business people, that sort of thing, and th- they can, you know, they can, they can be, they can, you know, latch on to people's anxieties and all the rest of it, and oh, they can play, they can play. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's an easy narrative that you can just be like, listen, it's like that person who isn't wasn't born here, not like, oh, actually, it's like this abstract, um, you know, cap like abstract capitalism just playing out and I think maybe yeah. sometimes perhaps the, the fault of um, say broad left is they'd rather like lecture uh, working class people who are actually going through these struggles and these hard times for yeah. some of them it's just like oh look it's, 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 this is what Marx said in action or this is what you know yeah. when it's not like oh yeah I still have to feel, feed my children and I can't afford electricity yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the Labour aristocracy sees itself as the as the natural born leaders of the working class, and and it only really mobilises the power of the working class to defend its own interests. It the, what it does for the rest of the working class is very limited, um, and as we've seen with austerity, there has they haven't fought on behalf of the 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 mass of the working class, so. We've got to build an alternative to that, basically, because otherwise, you know, I mean, fascism takes advantage of apathy as well. You know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to win sections of the working class, but an apathetic working class that isn't fighting is not an opponent, isn't going to be much of an opponent to a rising fascism. I mean, I don't think there's any threat of Britain becoming fascist at the moment. Um, But, you know, down the road when the struggle really um kicks off um 
you know, they're going to be organising. And, you know, you don't, you don't know what they're making of the Jeremy Corbyn situation because um, obviously they have all these absurd uh, theories about who and who isn't. A, a so- I mean, they, they would tell you that Barack Obama was a communist. And the um, Nazi, Nazis were socialists. Yeah. Yeah, and all this rubbish. It's in, it's in the name, though. There's a clue. Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other thing... Oh, sorry. I just, just briefly, I think what we've got to do is have faith in the working class, um, faith in its ability to uh, learn and and fight for its own interests. And, you know, we we can... We've got the material to win the working class to our sides, to communism, to socialism. We've just got to do the work. That's what we've got to do. We've got to do the work. Yeah, put the work in. We've got to put it in. Yeah, my, my, my lazy my lazy sort of communist group is uh, is in danger, I think. But um, one of the interesting things you mentioned then is you know, you've talked about the USA and the UK being imperial powers and you've talked about oppressed nations. You know, you, What's your view of the relationship, I guess, that at the moment between... Oppressed nations and and imperial nations. Well, you know, oppressed nations. I mean, some of this terminology probably needs updating because obviously a lot of national liberation struggles were fought, which um, sort of created nominally independent sovereign nations. Um, but you know, what is an oppressed nation? Probably a country that is being exploited by an imperialist country. Um, you know, there was a study that came out last year that showed that something like, over something like 30 years between 1980 and 2012, it was something like um, once you took all of world trade and everything into consideration, I think the surplus um, drain coming into of, of profits coming into the imperialist powers there's something like 16 trillion dollars um so yeah we're, we're getting 16 trillion more than we're putting in yeah so we're exporting capital to places like africa and, and asia countries in those regions and other places as well and the returns on them are huge and you know this is another reason like sort of you, when you're talking to people on the streets um who clearly aren't benefiting from living in a, an imperialist country, at least not anymore. And so you, why should they be anti-imperialist? We, we need clear arguments on this. Well, sure. obviously there's a moral reason, which is the one I've just sort of explained, and it's the source of, of racism. Um, it's the source of all uh, instability in the world and war. Um, and... Britain's working class is getting a raw deal because actually the nature of an imperialist country like Britain is that it has it needs to invest abroad. Um, it needs to export capital. I think Britain only invests about 17% of GDP in Britain. Yeah, which shows you why... Um, it shows you why, you know, the relative deindustrialization of this country has happened. You know, it's not simply a political decision um you know exporting capital is more profitable than exporting commodities if you're an imperialist nation so, so i mean so, the labor party is like for a lot of people is you won't get you know <clears throat> I, I guess certain people see jeremy corner as like 
the head of a coming revolution. But literally, what you're saying there is, it, no matter who's at the, you know, in charge, it, like there's just structural things that can't be changed within. Cap- yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the main structural problem is just simply that it's tied to the right wing of the Labour Party. If the Labour Party, headed by Jeremy Corbyn, wasn't aligned with the right wing of the Labour Party. We might have a different position. We might. I don't know. Um, but it is it is aligned with the right wing of the party, and that's the fact. And it's it, you know he's he's shown that he's willing to compromise with it to get elected. Um, you know, I think as the struggle develops, you know, there will be a growth in parties outside of the Labour Party. There, there's going to have to be because uh, Labour won't be able to do. Even the, all of the great stuff that Corbyn does talk about, Labour won't be... I don't think Labour will be able to do it. I don't think it's possible uh, through parliamentary politics. I mean, we'll see if, if, if uh, we'll see if a movement emerges outside of Parliament that's sort of... I mean, we're, we're, we're told that there's going to be a movement to put pressure on him once he becomes Prime Minister. I don't know. We'll, I hope there is, because it will make things more interesting. We'll learn things from it, you know every struggle is important so um but yeah the the labor party is not a psuv you know the psuv is struggling for socialism albeit not in the leninist sense um, psuv of in venezuela oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with uh maduro leading the party um you know they are trying to take a, a sort of uh democratic route to socialism but 70% of the economy is still owned by capitalists. Um, so, you know, but at the same time, they've they've won massive gains for the working class. Um, you know, if, if you're... Corbynism is not that, unfortunately. But yeah, what's interesting about the RCG, Barnaby, and, and what you sort of touched on there is that you do have a position on Venezuela and actually existing socialism. So let me just talk us through, I guess... The RCG's position on Venezuela, on Cuba, um, and I guess the, the, the struggles in those countries. What's what's your take on it? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll stick with Venezuela for now. I mean, um, yeah. there's a struggle for socialism. I mean, first and foremost, our job as socialists in an imperialist country is to defend the right to self-determination of, of oppressed nations. I, I mean, if you, I'm not sure if you call it oppressed nation anymore because it's an independent country, but, you know, our job is to say hands off Venezuela when they start talking about intervention there um, and, you know, organise to make sure that happens. But, you know, what's happening in Venezuela is very interesting, Um and it's it's an economic war, it's a class war, it's a slow-burning class war. And, you know, it looks like it's at some point bound to, to head for civil war. And, I, you know, that does come back to Lenin. You know, Lenin said you had to fight and win a, a civil war before you could really start to build socialism. And I think that's proving to be the case even in Venezuela, where they do have, you know, a very large, um, active, mobilised, organised working class movement um is that the no, and that's, of- that's the real that's the real reason for supporting venezuela is that the working class is is mobilized and active and fighting is, is, that, um, so, is that what it oh is that how you pronounce yeah it? yeah chavez chavez, from, chavez. 
from Chavez, yeah. Right, there are a lot of halfbacks. Yeah, but what we what we do see in Venezuela as well is um, the middle class and sort of you know very right wing elements are organised also, aren't they? And, um, in tandem, presumably with groups like the CIA and and things like that. But um, yeah. you know, so like under Chavez, there was a you know the middle class strikes, weren't there? Um, so all these struggles um, have real relevance to pretty much everyone else in a, every other country because. Their privilege has been taken away, or is it, is Maduro yeah, Chavez I mean, and then Maduro have threatened it? There's that. Um, yeah, I mean, Chavez. Sorry, it's good. There's that uh, mini documentary about all the rich Venezuelan kids uh, called. I, I'm not sure if it's like leaving this city or something, but like they're all complaining that they haven't got any money anymore, so they have to go to New York. Yeah, I mean, these are the people who are leading sort of the the anti-Maduro um, movement, aren't they? But um, yeah. What's interesting as well, I mean, the, what do you make of the, you know, the dominant narrative in, in the UK and the US, you know, like, oh, Maduro's caused economic crisis, you know, they're sitting on all this oil and people are still starving. I mean, what do you think of all that? I mean, it's, a t- it's, it's not as if it's completely untrue, um, but why is that happening? I mean, look, as I say, I've made massive gains by nationalising certain parts of the industry and the working class taking it over um, and but obviously where industry industry is still privately owned um, they're able to hoard food and products and, and when you look at it it's essentials that they hoard you know they, they they go on about oh look the shelves are empty of essential products yeah but the, you know the shelves are still full of all the luxury products that, aren't, yeah. that the working class doesn't need um, so it's all very see-through. It's all, it's it's very easy to um, expose. Um, but yeah, if they want to solve the crisis, they need to deepen the struggle for socialism. They need to nationalise more industries. Barbie, you've written extensively on the, I guess, the environmental crisis and the problems that face, I guess, the world. Um, do you want to say something on on that and how that's related to, you know, the relationship between capitalism and the environment? Yeah, I mean, I mean, as the crisis deepens, the um, ability of the system to generate uh, capital, to, to accumulate capital, becomes more difficult, and so it it turns to more destructive ways of of doing that. And you know, I've, one of the ways is through war. One of the ways is through destroying the environment. I mean, they've got to keep churning out the oil. They've got to keep um, chopping down forests, you know, to sell these resources off as commodities. They've got to keep doing it to raise profits. Um, you know, the solution for the capitalist crisis from the capitalist perspective is to find new ways of raising profit. Um, so, yeah, this the, uh, the planet is suffering. Um, and there's absolutely no doubt that climate change has accelerated because of capitalism. And it's really important to write about because you get all of these um, myths like, uh, like oh, the problem is overpopulation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all you have to do is look at the consumption levels, the average consumption levels of people in a rich country compared to in a poor country to see that, um, to see that resource, resources are used up quickest depending on consumption power, on consumer power. Um, 
not not because there's more people in one place than another. Um, and yeah, so I don't think capitalism can solve the climate crisis at all. You know, we've known about it for 30 years now and the temperature keeps rising, the carbon emissions keep rising, um, the renewables uh, that are coming into play are, you know, it's happening very slowly because it's not really that profitable at the moment. Um, you know, I hope I'm, I hope things will improve even before we get the chance to make a socialist revolution. But, you know, if there's any reason for people to become socialists now, it's it's got to be this. Um, you know, if if survival is in the material interests um, of anyone, then <laughs> yeah, being alive, then socialism no is in material interests. You know, this is a this is the you know capitalism can't survive this um, because it's going to destroy the planet. You know, so one way or another, capitalism is going to end before the you know by the end of this century, I think, and probably well before that and if it's not because of socialist revolution then it is going to be because it's destroyed the planet um so yeah i mean like it's only end because everyone everyone's just dead so this well <laughs> i don't know how i don't know how bad it's gonna get but everyone's there, it's no very clear it's very clear that socialist central planning is going to be the only way um to solve this crisis and Sorry, I didn't. I didn't speak about Cuba, but I come on to Cuba now. Cuba's absolutely leading the way on on the environment. It's you know it's restored. Um, it's had these massive reforestation campaigns. Um, you know, it, before it was uh, when it was a colony of the U.S., its forests were destroyed. But since it became an independent socialist country, it's it's restored its forests. Um, since um, the fall of the Soviet Union, it's been forced to, you know, re-innovate. And one of the really most impressive ways it's done that is is through farming and uh, biotechnology. You know, it doesn't. It's almost eliminated the sort of poisonous uh, pest control um, um, chemicals that are used here. You know, we hear about all the insects being killed off, like three quarters of the insects have been killed off in Germany, uh, mainly because of the pesticides that get used. Cuba doesn't use those because because the profit motive doesn't um, hinder its ability to, you know, innovate and, um, and, and experiment. And, you know, so it's it's really... Um, setting the bar very high compared to the rest of the world. And this is recognised by the UN and, and the WHO. Um, so it's not something I'm just saying because I'm a communist and I'm biased towards uh, socialist Cuba. This is all very well documented. Um, and yeah, we know we know what Cuba's done for the rest of the world. It's, it's internationalism has been exemplary. You know, it always sends doctors uh, where they're needed um, it's always providing aid, you know, the, the, the role it played in the national liberation struggles. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but... No, but it's, it's true, isn't it? Cuba, if you, you know, if you want to save the environment, look at Cuba, um, because well, it's a small island, yeah, but it's really made massive progress compared to anywhere else, considering its resources, 
considering the blockade, uh, which has denied it something like a trillion dollars, you know. Well, back in, um, you know, back during, well, 1997, when Wales was, when devolution was sort of coming to Wales, there were these re- really high-minded ideas, you know, because obviously one of the few things, although it developed, you know, in the colonial sort of trajectory, you know, one of the things Wales does have is wind power, you know, a lot of rain. And so there's all this high-minded rhetoric about, you know, building mm. in a small country, we can be, you know, all this talk about leading the way in the environment. You know, fast forward, 20 years and you know the Welsh government has just welcomed the dumping of hundreds of thousands of tons of nuclear waste from uh, Hinkley Point outside yeah. Cardiff it's welcomed uh, nuclear power Carwin Jones I don't know if you hear this Carwin Jones said that if Scotland became independent then Wales would take Trident nuclear subs in uh, yeah. West Wales they really pursued this destructive they've got a really destructive like almost insanely destructive view towards the the environment i mean friends of the earth cymru did a, an assessment of how environmentally friendly their pol- how environmentally friendly each party's policy was policies were before the 2016 assembly election and and they ranked them out of 10 and uh, labor got a 1.75 out of 10 and which is just above ukip um, yeah. <laughs> and what they what they what we see them doing here it's just a very short termist which, which is often thrown at socialists, I guess. It's like this jobs over the environment. And, mm. and, and traditionally, I think, you know, socialists haven't maybe, because it was almost people thought about associated socialism with industrialization, you know, rapid industrialization. And then people would say, well, maybe socialism is compatible with the environment. But um, as you say, it's interesting that, you know, Cuba has developed these innovative practices. Um, I mean, what would what would you say about like the the Welsh Labour government's position on you know the, the, how their the, their strategy? I don't know if you've heard much about it, but yeah, I mean, it seems like they will um, they're desperate for investment and and jobs to, because that's what will keep them in power. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a sorry situation. Um, but you've got to stand up to these corporations because they really don't care about the environment. They just care about making a profit. And, yeah, it's another reason to break with, with Labour. I mean, like we say, when, when we're talking about what should a communist position be on the Labour Party, we have to take into consideration the whole party, not just who's leading yeah. it. Um, that includes Welsh Labour and Sc- Scottish Labour. Um yeah, I mean, obviously people are desperate for jobs and if someone, if a quite a destructive company comes along and uh, and um, promises some jobs, people are probably, you know, going to want to go for that. But, you know, you have to weigh... You have to weigh up what's what the you know you have to get out of the short term thinking absolutely, and you have to fight for you know an alternative, which doesn't mean just like obviously you fight these sort of single issue things, but you've got to start building a broader movement because if you're not going to be able to offer people an alternative, then they will just go for whatever's on offer, basically, um, you know in a roundabout way. So that, this is, you know, there's all there's all these, you know, horrible contradictions, um, but that's why we have to build a united fighting working class movement. 
Barry, that's been absolutely fantastic, mate. You've it's been really illuminating and informative. Uh, as ever, are there any? Is there anyone or any group or anything, any country or anything like that that you want to give a shout out to? Listen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, shout out to you boys. Thanks for having me oh, on. And, uh, no, thanks a lot, mate. I don't really have any shout outs uh, apart from to uh, death threats to like any enemies struggle. you want to call out. Doesn't have to be positive. <laughs> You know, I want to convert as many people to the cause of socialism as possible. And um, it's about being non-sectarian. It's about, you know, we struggle for progressive causes all the time. We'll struggle against regressive reforms as well. Um, So we just have to keep going until we build up the strength to really get going and really start fighting for socialism, really, you know, offering a real alternative for people. So, yeah, just a shout out to all comrades who are, who are fighting the good fight and, you know, really dedicating themselves to it. Brilliant from Barnaby there. Um, really, really bright and really great guy, really really patient with us. Yeah. Um, we, we meant to have him on the show for... Yeah, we've been trying to get him on for a while, um, but we're delighted he's, he's finally came on. Um, we really hope that you all found that as useful and illuminating and as insightful as we did. There's a few things I'd like to sort of uh, reflect on. Um, firstly, that, I mean, chatting to Barnaby there, and you know how good his and the revolutionary communist group's understanding of sort of the problems facing society and how to solve it is is that you just keep coming back it keep coming back to this but just read you know Marx Engels Lenin Gramsci these you know classic classical Marxism you know it's it's a heuristic it's a way of understanding capitalism it's a way of understanding the problems that are inherent to capitalism and it's a way of understanding you know crises and it's a, and it just baffles me that more people don't you know d- don't don't read it because it's like you know you've got people oh i can't believe you know why is the economy crashing and things it's it's all in there you know why what you know why is the uk and the us why did the dri- labor party sell out the working class but yeah but it's all driven you know it's it's all related to imperialism so it's um it's really important that you do sort of read these classics. Um, in terms of how this relates to Wales, there's a number of things that what well, you know, Barnaby said that I think that are really important to Welsh politics and society. The first and most notable thing he said: the Revolution Communist Group is not a party; um, it's a you know it's a group, and that's important. But also he said that they're, they're engaged all the time in in activism on the front lines of anti-austerity struggle. You know, the housing struggles are always down campaigning. Um, for more affordable housing, they're campaigning to stop people being evicted. And I think what's really noticed about Welsh politics is the absolute lack of that sort of activism, the radical on the streets activism. I know it exists, and I'm not, as I said, I'm not doing to denigrate people who are involved in this, but so much of politics in Wales is done by parties and is co-opted by parties that it's rare for people and activists to exist outside existing party structures which i think is really damaging because you need people doing this street work you know talking to people helping people and not pushing a party line um well i mean that's the thing with uh, i guess we said earlier within the conversation with groups like momentum is essentially ironically it does take the momentum out of grassroots campaigns and then push it through a parliamentary process yeah and it makes things less effective because it's so partisan um in wales the biggest problem is that everything gets co-opted by the Labour Party. So, you know, um, we've t- talked about that and I'll talk about it time and time again. Um, it's really important. But, you know, but also, you know, 
play don't co-op things in the same way the Labour Party do, but um, I think it's important. Is and Michael Sheen talked about this actually. There's a real need for a new, you know, a new left-wing anti-austerity movement that's not related to these parties, or it could be like a broad church that income, you know, people who are from yeah, non-partisan in you know, Labour and play can join in. Um, so I think that's really important for building a healthy democracy as well as for fighting austerity because it'll help uh, break one partyism. Um, the second thing I was going to talk about was the environmental aspect. So Barnaby's written loads on in, you know, the environmental catastrophe and how capitalism is destroying the environment. Um, and he spoke about Cuba and how progressive and radical some of the environmental initiatives Cuba has uh, pioneered are. And what's striking is, you know, small countries like that, like Cuba, you know, whale, Wales, you know, back in 1997, there was all this rhetoric, oh, you know, Wales is going to be a, like a world leader in the environment. We're not a world leader in anything other than incompetence at the moment, really. But there's no... Big but all it is in Cuba, it's political will. It's having the political will to pursue, you know, sustainable, uh, environmentally friendly um, policies. And, and there's absolutely no reason that Wales couldn't just crack on with doing this. Um, you know, and finally, and I guess related to you know, this idea of state intervention in the environment is this idea that, you know, there can be no progressive movement or progressive socialism that doesn't have the environment um, and natural resources at the heart of it. And, um, okay, so we've come to the end of another fantastic, rip-roaring episode of Desolation Radio. Um, just want to say thanks very much uh, to everyone who's um, keeps tuning in, keeps spreading the word. Um, thanks. To, I mean, we've got a lot of new followers now, so um, I guess my shout-outs this week are going to be to uh, Michael Sheen for for name dropping us in the Raymond Williams lecture. It was really nice of you, um, and to you know welcome I guess to all our new followers. Um, and thanks again. You know, we, we just tweet a photo saying like we're recording, but it does every time I look at the all our nice new equipment that we use. It really is sort of quite humbling and brilliant that people have chipped in and helped us um, to get to huge media communist media empire that we are today yeah definitely uh, my shout outs uh, to Kurt Russell as his standard hope sure. to get him on big listener big fan of the show I'm assuming and uh, yeah. to Oliver our design guy who's just going to be uh, above and beyond Tom Arnold so yeah big shout outs to those two okay see you guys next week see you next week bye. bye I did this whole crazy thing so people wouldn't redeem the rebate but really in the end what I realize is that more important than any of this is friendship. Oh, that's right. In doing this, I made some very good friends. Ray Primus was one of them. Who? Ray, Ray? Primus. Oh. He was willing to drink pee. Pee? Yeah. Really? <laughs> Who's pee? No, just anyone's pee. Anyone's pee? He says there's no germs. Oh, maybe they can drink my grandson's pee. It's very clean. Yeah? Well, why... Uh, because it's clean. Why drink my why pee or your pee? promoting your grandson's pee? <laughs> well, I am promoting because grandson's pee sometimes helps. It's, it's, it so, really helps. Have you drank your grandson's pee? Yeah. Why? I was scared. What do you mean you were scared? Yeah, sometimes you're scared for, for something. You what are know, you talking sudden about? Accident or something, you drink the grandson's pee and it's gonna help you. I don't understand. What? Why does it help you if you drink your grandson's pee? 
That's what they say. Yeah. Who says that? My grandma. Your grandma Long time said. Ago. Yeah. You I drink your grandson's that. pee yeah, if you get scared. Not grandsons, any little kid. <clears throat> Not over age of five, because before <clears throat> over age of five, it's 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 terrible. <laughs> I have never. I am serious about it. But why? Yeah, if you're scared. You drink the small child's pee, it helps. I heard from my grandma. You can ask your parents or grandparents, maybe they tell you too. I will ask, I okay, guess. Okay, ask uh... them. Thank you for giving this idea.